to snatch souls out of the evil one's grasp. And so opposition always arises against the work if we are faithful to the message of the Bible. When the Lord is at work, because, you know, this is not about learning something about Scripture tonight. It's not about to know what a church is about. The, 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 the Bible, Bible preached, the Bible sung, the sacraments and ministers, prayers to the God of heaven, the uh, great commission that is administered in a church. This is all work against powers and principalities. And even though the, the world out here is going to oppose the work, and even your own flesh is going to oppose the work. We'll see that later. So church planting is often done with tears. Why? I think of some of the reasons for tears. How many times, and if you've been in the Dallas RPC, you already know this, how many times do we weep when the lost sneer and reject the gospel offered to them in evangelism? We, we, leave, we weep because friends will leave because our church is too small, and then it becomes smaller. <coughs> We weep when Satan, like Sandalit, rises up against the work and ravages it. Yes, tears often streak the faces of church planters and poor families in a work. From experience, and I am so thankful that actually some of the founding families uh, of the Dallas RPC and our founding pastor, Reverend Mark Kohler, are here tonight. Many tears, from experience we can say, were shed at the Dallas RPC when it was planted 10 years ago and in the intervening time. You can ask Reverend Kohler about that or any of the families here who were part of that work. But beloved, our psalm says, yes, the work of planting, of sowing is done with tears. You must know it as you begin to build, but you must also anticipate and look beyond the tears as our Lord looked beyond the cross that there is a promise of joy to come after tears are shed. It says, we will, we shall bring in our sheaves with joy. That our tear-soaked labor is never in vain if it is done for the Lord. The scriptures exhort us in so many ways, right? Let us not be weary in doing well, in well-doing, for in due season, what? We shall reap, if what? We faint not. Galatians 6, 9. And so as we look to the Lord for help in planting a new congregation, let us gird up ourselves to prepare for what may lay ahead, the tears that will be shed, but also the anticipation of the joy that will come if we faint not. And that we would understand that tears in the labor then are not a sign of God's disfavor, but in so many ways are actually a sign of God's favor. For there's a promise associated that those who, uh, who, who labor, who sow in tears, shall reap in joy. So our theme in view of all that is church planting is done with tears, but also joyful anticipation. We'll consider our theme under three heads. First, motivations for sowing. Second, tears in sowing. And third, anticipation as we sow. First, motivations for sowing. And if you are going to labor with tears for the Lord Jesus, you must have the right motivations for planting a church. Unless you know why a church is planted, when your cheeks are tear-streaked, you will give up. And many do give up when the tears come. So to understand our motivation, let us consider this psalm's context. That will greatly aid us, I think, as we exposit the text. The first verse states, When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion... We were like them that dream. Our fathers that first sang this song had been captives of Babylon. Boys and girls, do you remember the Babylonian captivity? Do you remember that? 
The Lord ripped out the Jews out of the promised land, didn't he? Uh, and he took them to Babylon. Why? For their unfaithfulness, wasn't it? Because they had abandoned the Lord. He used the Babylonians to do it. The Babylonians took the Jews to Babylon. They, they, they sacked Jerusalem and they took the Jews. They destroyed the temple. That's why it's called the Babylonian captivity, or as verse 1 says, Zion's captivity. Who are some of the people you might remember, boys and girls, from that captivity? You remember Daniel. You might remember Daniel. You might uh, remember his three friends, right? Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They were all in Babylon. Now, if you think of the context then, the situation, the Jews in Babylon, that would have been, that would have been seen as hopeless to the natural man, wouldn't it? Right? You would say, this is it. Uh, the, the story of the Jews is over. The story of the people of God is finished. Why? Babylon is a great empire, wasn't it? And how significant were the Jews? They were like nothing. They were uh, insignificant in the face of Babylon. But you remember that God gave his people a promise before captivity began. He promised. He is not finished with them. He was just chastising them. And he said when the chastisement was finished, he would return them. He said in 70 years, before he sent them away, he said in 70 years, I will return you to the land. Jeremiah 29.10 For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. Now, boys and girls, what a God we have who has decreed the end from the beginning, who is telling his people before they go away that in 70 years, I will bring you back. You will be captives, yes, but I will bring you back. You will return. And Daniel in Babylon, you remember, he pleads this promise in prayer in Daniel 9. And God was faithful, wasn't he? He visited the Jews and caused them to return. How did he do it? Well, the Lord did what no one would expect, naturally speaking. But he prophesied what he would do in Jeremiah 25, 12. He told his servants, the prophets, what he would do. And it shall come to pass, when 70 years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon, and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity, and the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it perpetual desolations. And this is exactly what happened. The Persians conquered the Babylonians after 70 years in captivity of the Jews. Now, you might think, well, okay, well, if it's like any other conquest, the Jews would have just been transferred from Babylon, right, to Persia. That's what happens in conquest. They simply have a new master, and this new master is usually worse than the prior one. So what happened next was extraordinary, boys and girls. Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, published an edict to release our fathers. His edict, you can look at it later, is preserved in the first chapter of Ezra. And a part of it says, He, that is Jehovah, hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. What a marvelous thing that is. That God has, has moved this pagan king, saying, Build my house in Jerusalem. And then what does Cyrus do? He charges the Jews. He says, Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. And parenthetically, he is God. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. Can you imagine it? This fierce pagan king says, Go, all you Jews, go, build. Go and build the house of God. 
It was like a dream, friends, to these godly captives who had wept by the rivers of Babylon, Psalm 137. This is why our psalm says, When the Lord turned again, meaning returned the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. These are things that are extravagant, and they ought to be to us. right? We should look on this and say, what a God this is who does such things. What a dream it was. God has moved the heart of a pagan king for our good. You must have faith that this same God who is your God does these things and will do these things because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He always keeps his promises to preserve his people and he has promises that say to us he will build his church and he will use the most extraordinary at times and extravagant means that defy our expectations. Why does he do it? So that no one else but him will get the glory and praise. He alone, think of it, gets glory for turning Cyrus's heart. Will a diplomat get the praise? Will an army get the praise? Will the Jews get the praise? No, God gets the glory. And so when we see Cyrus's heart turn, we open the scripture and admit, for the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Proverbs 21.1. And we say glory to God for that. You must labor to build Christ's church with this kind of expectation, friends. No matter how hopeless or, 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 or how sorry a state the church appears to be in, he is pleased to use the earthen vessels, the weak things of the world, so that he gets the glory. No one ever gets the glory but God for liberating us in the Exodus or in the Babylonian captivity, and certainly not for liberating us from our sin. No one but God. So today, as we read it in Matthew 28, 18, Christ the King and Head of His Church is enthroned with all power for his church. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And what was the use of that? I, we, we read that, right? We, we memorize it, which we should. But what's the very next word? Go, isn't it? Go build. Go build my church. I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, I think. But the context of the psalm rises out in the captive Jews returning to build the temple. You know, in the captivity... The, the temple, Solomon's temple, had been raised to the ground. And so the returning captives had to rebuild the temple to restore God's worship. Boys and girls, you can read the history of the difficulty of that in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra sometime. You will read, if there's one thing you will read of, it is tears and difficulties that face the returning Jews. You might ask, though, what does the building of this second temple have to do with us today here in Bedford? And it has everything to do with us, beloved, because the church is the New Testament temple of God. Know ye not, and it's almost like the Bible says, how do you not know this? Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you, 1 Corinthians 3.16. All believers are lively or living stones of the spiritual temple of God, 1 Peter 2.5. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of this new and living temple, 1 Peter 2.7. That is the point of contact with this song and why it was preserved in the scriptures. Why was it preserved for us to sing? For us to sing of Jerusalem and a temple that's in rubble? No, it is for the building up of Christ's church to the end of the age. We are here gospel laborers that build the New Testament temple by ingathering soul after soul after soul, a living temple that must be built and will be built by Christ as he has promised. The title is also very important for us. 
I want to consider this lastly as a bit of context. It is one of the songs of degrees. Literally in Hebrew, it is a song of rising. That's the literal Hebrew, a song of rising. These songs, 120 to 134, it is likely they were sung as pilgrims ascended the Temple Mount as they went to worship into Jerusalem. They're walking up. What does that remind us? What is their ascent? Why did you have to ascend to the temple? Because it is a picture as pilgrims, we are on our way to heaven. The Psalms of Degrees, then, as you look at these, these several Psalms, 120 and 134, you might want to mark that for yourself. They remind us, especially as we consider building the church, that laboring for the Lord's work is a heavenly matter. It is labor for things that endure, for things that will endure. So much of what we labor for will perish and will be burned up but not when we labor for the sake of the church. We labor for a city with foundations. Our labor in church planting is heavenly labor, which is why it is often filled with tears, because it is against the world. Well, with that, let that suffice for context with our time being what it is. And in view then of the psalm, let's consider two motivations to plant a church here. Our first motivation must be for the glory of Jesus Christ. We've sung that so far. Our second motivation must be to save the lost. Now, I'm going to reverse the order, and I think that will become clear as we look at the, the structure of the psalm. Uh, we'll start with the salvation of the lost. You must build a church here with the express intention to seek and save that which is lost. A great problem in Reformed churches is that we are content with being saved ourselves. We are content to bask in our salvation Sabbath after Sabbath, and we love hearing of our justification, and we ought to love it, and we love hearing it preached to us every Lord's Day. But we will not take that same hope that has brought us to tears and has uh, brought us to adore and love the Savior. We will not take that same hope of Christ to the community that is around us. I cannot sugarcoat it, and I will not. That is wicked. That is actually wickedness. That is defiance of the Lord. You heard what he said in Matthew 28. Go. Go and make disciples of all nations. That is sin to not do it. Our psalmist here, he pleads for souls. He pleads that they would be saved. He pleads with Jehovah. Look at the words. Turn again our captivity, O Lord. The psalmist who is free in the promised land said, we are freed here, but will you return all the captives, O Lord? Not just us, but all the elect of God. Not content to be there in Jerusalem. He wants all captives to come. You must survey the mid-cities, and you must see soul after soul after soul marching to hell. You are to pray and plead, turn again our captivity, O Lord. Where will such love come? Where will such love for the lost come? When the Spirit works in your own heart to remind you of your own captivity to sin and Satan. The Babylonian captivity, and I don't have time to go into this, but this is a Reformed teaching. It's what the Bible plainly teaches. The Babylonian captivity was a picture of our captivity to sin. Which is what Jesus Christ has come to free us from. For without Christ, what do we read? Ye were the servants of sin. Romans 6.20 Well, what happened to you, believer? One day, blessedly, Jesus Christ laid hold of you. 
he apprehended you. His spirit came into your heart and broke the captivity you had to sin and the devil. Faith was given to you to believe the precious promise of the gospel. And you learned the truth. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. John 8, 36. Has that stopped being glorious to you? Do you even care that the Lord has freed you from your captivity to sin and Satan? And what that captivity earns you, which is an eternity of hell. I don't think we, I was talking to some minister friends, uh, even in, in good churches we don't meditate on the horror of hell as we ought to. And we don't find that we are, are, are on our knees every day blessing the Lord Jesus Christ for what he has done to sinners who, who deserve that and out of his own travails has freed us from it. And we don't care anymore. We don't glory in something that we once did when we were converted. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. By his sovereign action, he has turned our hearts. He has turned our heart to love him. He has turned our heart to adore him. He has taken us out of our deep, great darkness into the miry pit that we were found in, in the dunghill that we were living in. And he brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son and into his marvelous light. We were reborn when our eyes were from above and our eyes were opened to the terrors of hell and to the precious Savior that freely forgives through faith in himself. And we laid hold of Jesus Christ even as he laid hold of us and we were saved to the uttermost. And unlike the Babylonian captivity, this is the difference. The Babylonian captivity was not a total captivity. Perhaps Jews did sneak out of Babylon. Perhaps Jews actually left Babylon. They could have done it. The Babylonians were, were not omniscient. They weren't omnipotent. And while a Jew might have escaped Babylon, no man has ever escaped from his sin unless Jesus Christ has come to free him. Does that not bother you just a bit, friend? That no one in this town is going to be freed unless Jesus Christ has preached to them. Does that not bother you? It ought to bother you that these neighborhoods are filled with people who will not be freed unless the gospel is preached to them. If it doesn't bother you, then what has happened to your heart? How hard has it gotten that you cannot mourn over that? This is why we proclaim good news and extend the kingdom of God, that we who have freely received salvation as a gift, Ephesians 2 8, totally unearned, we plead with the Lord, turn back our captivity, turn back all your elect. In, in Babylon, they weren't content to say, well, I'm glad the Lord has turned us back here, and I just don't care about everybody else in Persia right now. But our Savior has said, what? Freely ye have received, freely give. How hard-hearted we must be if we can look on other men in captivity to the devil and their sin and not have a heart to freedom. The psalmist cries out, and we cry out every time we sing this song, free our captivity. But I have to ask you tonight, in a group like this, have you been freed by the Son of God? Can't take it for granted. Have you been freed from sin's captivity? If not, you must turn to the Lord. Say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus Christ is held forth tonight as a free gift to you now. That's why we're here, really, aren't we? To hold forth Jesus Christ to all men 
that he would be high and lifted up and all men would see him, that they would know that the blood of Jesus Christ can be applied to you by the Holy Ghost who will come to indwell you, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You will no longer be a slave to sin, but Christ will be your benevolent master and he will cripple sin's power over you. That is the good news of the gospel, friends. Eternal life in Jesus Christ. It ought to be like a dream to us. If we understood the pressing reality of sin and hell. This is why it is good news. This is why it was the angels proclaimed the glad tidings. Didn't they? Because this is the best thing anyone could hear. When the captives to Babylon heard the decree published, our psalm says, We were like them that dream, then our mouth filled with laughter, and our tongue with singing. Now think of this, and think of ourselves. If Cyrus's decree was like a dream to them, how much more the decree of God that goes like this, Christ Jesus comes into the world to save sinners, even the chief. That should be the stuff of dreams to you. What are you dreaming about? That is a dream to dream of. That is good news. That's why the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to how many people? All people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Your mouth should be filled with laughter and singing whenever you see look to. And then you must declare the good news yourself. You know, this church plant, if the Lord is to bless it, cannot... It must not be a small holy huddle where true believers flock together to, just to have refuge from the community around us. It must, it must press the message of Christ crucified for sinners to the community that the Lord has rooted you in. Consider verses 2 and 3 and see how they publish the good news. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. <clears throat> it's really rather interesting. The wonder of the gospel here causes the heathen at the time to say, Jehovah has done great things for his people. The heathen saw it and could admit, Jehovah has done great things for them. But how will they see it unless we say ourselves to the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Uh, providentially, next Lord's Day, in Luke chapter 8, we will have Jesus Christ come and free the demoniac from legion. And what does he tell him? Go and tell your friends what great things the Lord has done for you. It's the same here in this song, isn't it? If you were truly glad of what you have received, you would publish and share the gospel. You would tell others, oh, come and see what God has done for this poor wretched sinner who should burn in hell. Come, let me tell you what he has done for my soul. This church plan must have that motivation to take the gospel to this part of the Metroplex. Otherwise, it will be unfaithful and also unloving, both to God and to neighbor. This is anecdotal, but I don't think it is anecdotal purely because it is based on the word of God. I have observed a pattern in our church plants. I was blessed to be on the home missions board, as you know, most of you know. The Lord, this pattern is being picked up by many now. The Lord is blessing our church plants that evangelize. Those that do not and are unfaithful to the Great Commission seem to be chastened by the Lord. But all the church plants I know where, where people are going into their community, whatever they went, you know, whether it's open air preaching door to door or setting up tables at the park, whatever it is, or inviting promiscuously people to church, 
Those who have a heart to do it, they seem to be blessed by the Lord and are growing. So that was our second motivation, which we considered first. But let's consider our highest motivation, which is to establish the worship of God in this place. To glorify and praise our triune God for what great things he has done for us. That this would be a place where Jesus Christ has the preeminence. For those that were saved, praise the Lord. Their tongues were filled with singing. They were singing the praises of God by way of the psalms, psalms like this one. After all, what was their work, the song of, of, of degrees or ascents? Why were they sent to Jerusalem? To rebuild the temple. What was the purpose of rebuilding the temple? To worship God so that the Lord would be glorified and that his presence would dwell with his people. All that we do here in the mid-cities must be to the glory of God. It is not to the building up of the glory of the Reformed Presbyterian Church. It is not the building up of a social environment because we have a shorter commute. It is not for our personal ease in that way. Many of these things are good, but they are all secondary or tertiary. It is first for the glory and worship of God. The aim of evangelism, as so many have rightly pointed out, is what? What is the aim of evangelism? Don't start with the salvation of souls. Begin with the worship of God. Souls are saved because they will not worship God otherwise. They are saved so that God would have a great multitude, no man can number, as we see in the Revelation, that will praise him. Men are saved to worship God. Freed captives praise Jehovah for their liberation. Why is worship important for Reformed Presbyterians? It, or should be important because worship glorifies God. A false dichotomy that you must put away, and it's all throughout the church, is that we can either be evangelistic or we can be serious about worship. No, this place must be a place fervent for evangelism and fervent for biblical worship. Fervent for the truth of the word because the word teaches we must be fervent for both. When more churches are planted, the Lord is glorified and worshiped more. When churches are multiplied, then this comes to pass. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the seas. Because when a church is planted, the knowledge of Christ spreads and the saints are edified. And the knowledge of the Lord transforms us from glory to glory and he is glorified by that. Churches planted must be a place where the sentiment is this. God forbid that we should glory, save in what? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom what? The world is crucified unto me and I unto the world that God would be glorified. Pray that this would be a place then, as you pray and you seek this yourself, where the excellency of the knowledge of Christ is expounded week after week. A place that will cause men, and I hope this is you, that to count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Do you not think tears come with that? To count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord place where the preaching of the word is seen for what it is, not a Bible study, but part of the worship of God, where we will desire to be reproved, rebuked, and exhorted with all long-suffering and doctrine, where the psalms of God are sung. You know, I, I wonder, uh, my mind goes this way, and these are the secret things of God. Have the 150 psalms all been sung in this place? Has Psalm 1 to 150 been sung 
in the Mid-Cities area. Ever. I don't know that they have been. Isn't that a thing? That this might be the very first place that would sing all of the praises of God. It's a strange and staggering thing. Let that change, friends. Let the world hear the songs of Zion as you seek to build Zion. And when this body is edified by the means of grace, it will become and must become a place of love, where love for neighbor is exemplified in you. Because if worship isn't transforming us into a people who follow the second table of the law as well as the first, are we really worshiping God? No. Let this be a place where all men know you are Christ. Because why? You love one another. Well, time is slipping far away. But I hope you have right motivations out of this song to plant a new church. The next two headings will be a bit more brief. Let's consider next, tears in sowing. Verses 5 and 6. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Do you see the tenor of sowing for the Lord? Tears and weeping. That will be the nature of sowing for Christ. The psalm is reminding you of it. What's the seed you will sow? The psalm calls it precious, and it's precious for a reason, because this precious seed is the word of God. This is the great seed by which Christ has promised to build his church. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing what? The word of God. Crucially, when our Lord spoke of sowing seed, he gave us the parable of the sower. Jesus said kingdom expansion is like sowing the seed of the word in Matthew 13. But here's where the tears come in. Because you remember in that parable, don't you? We were considered the, the account of it in Luke recently. That while there are many kinds of ground, the sower only sees fruit from one kind, the good ground. It's for that reason that there are many tears sown in gospel ministry, as seed does not take root. So much pleading is done with sinners to be reconciled to God, and it goes unheeded. Or, or some folks appear to respond to the word of God for a little while. They're excited. You've seen this in our own church. Excited for a little while, but then they fall away. Or Satan arises to snatch the seed out of their hearts. And we weep, don't we, if we are spiritually sensitive? We weep. Oh Lord, another soul has turned away from thee. But then there's also opposition that arises. He's heard of Satan snatching the seed out of the heart. But there is other opposition that arises to our sowing. There's opposition, there will be opposition from without, meaning outside, and opposition from within. Let's begin with opposition without or outside this group. You remember that as soon as, connected to this psalm, of course, you remember as soon as Nehemiah was sent to rebuild Jerusalem by King Artaxerxes, what happened? Satan uses Sanballat and others to stop the work immediately. Nehemiah chapter 2. If you are faithful to the Great Commission, Satan takes notice very quickly. And he will always move in elements to try to stop this work. And what we must not be unaware of, right? The Bible says we are not unaware of his devices. You must not be unaware that any time you seek to plunder the gates of hell, you're going to have Satan's work move in immediately. Elements will try to stop this work, and you will grieve over it. Maybe there will be elements like during COVID when magistrates said, you cannot worship Christ. Or neighbors might try to make you stop evangelizing. 
For instance, it's so interesting. I was, I was speaking to our elders about this uh, recently, but it's it's so interesting that almost immediately after we began open air preaching on on public property in the city of McKinney, they pass an ordinance, don't they, where you can't use amplification. Well, but did, did we let that stop us? No, we go out without amplification. You must resolve to continue to preach the word without whatever the opposition arises to it. You need to expect it, though. This is the point. Expect it and continue to labor to press on to the Lord in tears. In fact, I have reflected in my years in the ministry, which are not very many, of course, but still I think are significant in some ways. Every time opposition comes, instead of being discouraged, you should be encouraged. Somebody doesn't like it. Somebody doesn't like it, friends. And that means that you are pressing very close. You are, uh, you are, are, are triggering a nerve, so to speak. But most significantly, and where his mischief is usually found with greater tears, is by opposition within. Very often, don't be unaware of this device, Satan sows dissension and division among you, his disciples. Where did Judas arise from? Within. Paul warned the Ephesian elders that voracious wolves would arise from within. Church plants are vulnerable to schism. A single saint or a single family can be the source of much contention in a group. Don't think about others, though, right now. Think on yourself. Be on guard in your own heart. And you need to see contention is against the work of Christ. Whatever your preferences are, you know, if, they're, if it's not a matter of thus saith the Lord, you must be content if it doesn't go your way. Put it away. See the great work Christ is doing and be at peace one with another. At DRPC, we had several occasions come from within the core group. Great difficulties came, but the Lord brought us through them all. And I trust he will do the same if you seek him. But I want you to be aware the evil one loves schism. The evil one loves schism and he will provoke it. Kingdom expansion threatens his kingdom. And he even knows this, right? If opposition comes from without, like let's say that ordinance, which is in the grand scheme of things, a very small thing. But what does the church do when that opposition comes? The church sometimes just rallies together, right? Okay, well, we will press on all the more. But what happens when opposition comes within? Now, that's where he really comes to us. And he threatens us because then it is disciple against disciple. And he laughs because rather than us plundering the gates of hell, we are squabbling with one another over and over again. Don't do the work of Satan. Christ would say to you, get thee behind me, Satan, if you do his work. And what happens when sheep are separated? Well, the prowling lion comes in and snatches his prey. That's what a lion does. Then you will face discouragements of other kinds. Maybe new, no new families have come for a while. Maybe families have left. Maybe the evangelism seems to bear no fruit. Here's a thing. You know, I always thought about group projects growing up as a pagan to have one or two people would do all the work. Well, it's the same way in church plants. It is often one or two people who do all the work, and that can be a discouragement to them. Uh, if you're not doing any of the work, help do the work. But if you are one or two of those families that are doing all the work, don't be discouraged. Your labor is for the Lord. Do it for him. Keep your eye on Christ and continue to sow fruits. And what the psalm teaches is this. Your tears are no reason to stop sowing. 
Tears are not to stop gospel labor. You are to labor for the Lord. His promise, our faith is in the promise that in due season we will reap if we labor for the Lord. So whatever the source of your discouragement, whatever the source of your tear-streaked faces are, you need to be steadfast and immovable, beloved. Have Paul's heart, who in the face of opposition said, but none of these things move me. None of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with what? Joy. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify. What is his aim? To testify the gospel of the grace of God. Acts 20, 24. You need to say, none of these things move me. I will be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. Even with tears, especially with tears. Do the work with wet cheeks if you must. In Acts 20, maybe you might want to read it later today. What did Paul say in the same chapter? I looked at it again as I prepared the sermon. I thought on the apostle. He said he served the Lord with all humility of mind and with many what? Tears and temptations. Did it dissuade the apostle to cry and weep? He also said, by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Do not let the evil one make you believe your labor here will be without tears. Expect tears and grief will come for Christ's sake, beloved. I am unsure. I believe this actually by faith. That you will never find a single Christian who has labored for the Lord without tears. Whether they express them on their face or in their heart. Tears are part of gospel, kingdom, labor. You look, read your Bible. You'll find it there. Those who turn aside are those who think they should not be part of the labor. That tears should not be part of the labor. They give up. Haven't you heard of the apostle? But what of other men? Men like Robert Murray McShane, who labored with tear-streaked faces. People would see his desk stained with tears because he prayed for his congregation and the lost among them. When souls refused the, the gospel, tears streaked his face, his sentiment, why should you die? Why should you refuse such a gracious Savior when you could live? This last week, on Friday, uh, myself and several gospel ministers were pleading with men and women and children to be reconciled to God. And it causes you to cry. One man was visibly moved. One minister, uh, a student of the ministry who was studying for the ministry was visibly moved. He was in tears. Because so many, hundreds of people passed us by and were pleading with them to come and turn to the Lord. And they just walked away, turning their AirPods on, uh, on all the more, looking down at their feet, looking away and will not listen to Christ crucified for sinners. If you're spiritually sensitive, that makes you weep. Where does such a heart, though, of weeping come from? Is this just some emotionalism? No. Did our Savior not weep, friends? Our own Savior wept over Jerusalem when it rejected him. But he was what? Steadfast and immovable and went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. So much sowing is done with tears, friends. Expect to weep as you build. But for your encouragement, have anticipation as you build, which is our last heading. Here is the promise for you, brethren, a promise from God. Hang on to it when you weep.
verses 5 through 6. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless, doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing the sheaves with them. Do you hear the promise? You shall reap in joy, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing. The Lord is no liar. And he is no cruel master. He will give us fruit if we labor with tears for him. You will rejoice, brethren, if you labor for him and are faithful to the calling. That is a matter of faith. Faith pressing on even with tears because there is anticipatory joy. We spoke about that very recently in the preaching in Dallas. Knowing joy will come if you ask yourself, where is the fruit of my labor? Be patient. Be patient and wait for it. You remember, sowing and reaping are done in different seasons. Spring and fall, typically. The Bible says what? For in what season? Due season. We shall reap. Time must elapse from when you sow. Perhaps the Lord is preparing the crop. Isn't that what he's doing when the sower uh, throws the seed down? The Lord is at work in that seed. And the Lord is bringing it to, become, to maturity. It doesn't come immediately. The sower doesn't sow his seed in the field. And then suddenly like that, up comes the wheat. Takes time. Takes time. And the Bible says, in due season we shall reap. And then the joy will come. Have patience, friends. Labor with perseverance. And at other times, I've thought on this, you might not even recognize the fruit the Lord has given you. It's as though we expect that the, the seed that we sow, the word that we, we sow, that particular word is, is, is going to produce a particular kind of crop. But it doesn't always produce the crop that we expect, friends. But the fruit is there. Think of how DR, DRPC, Dallas RPC, right, the sending church, has been greatly enriched with our after our evangelistic endeavors. Can we point to a single soul that has come to salvation in our direct evangelism? And maybe they have. The Lord is sometimes pleased to hide from us the fruit that he has provided so that we do not become haughty and think that we are the agent of salvation. I don't know. Maybe he has. But as we began that work, can we not point to conversions in the congregation? Can we not point to sheep who are more eager to hear God's word. Can we not point to more and more souls coming to join us? Fruit is there, friends. Perhaps it's a different crop than you expect, but it is there. Labor with full assurance, friends, that our tears, and I thought of it this way, our tears are often the very thing that waters the seed that is sown. As our heart is moved, the Lord takes our tears and waters the seed, and the Lord blesses us with fruit. And what great fruit there will be in due season, beloved. Consider verse 4. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. This is a prayer that we ought to pray. It's not a prayer for a trickle of souls to return to the Lord, but mighty streams. The underlying D Hebrew is it's not really reflected so well here. The Hebrew means a deep channel of water. And in the south, that southern Palestine, a desert, dry places, a spiritually dry place like the Metroplex. This is a heavenly prayer. Save not a few, Lord. Save a mighty stream, even in the driest place. 
Save a mighty torrent of souls, O God. Though our group is small tonight, we say what of it? We pray that a great stream would come. When the first captives return, this is why we must never forget. Why is the Lord putting in the difficulty of rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple? For our sake, that through the scriptures we might have hope. When the Lord, when they were, when they were so discouraged, what did the Lord encourage them with? For who hath despised the day of small things? Zechariah 4.10. Never be discouraged by the smallness of the work. We're often encouraged by the question, and as church plants, we often remember that. But do you know what the very next verse says? For they shall rejoice. They shall rejoice. The promise comes again. Joy will come in the labor. And, and you think of this, right? Why are these things given to us in history, in the Bible? Did Ezra and Nehemiah, who wept so, so profoundly, did they not see the fruit of their labors? Jerusalem and the temple were rebuilt, and many captives returned home. And most blessedly of all, the glory of the Lord came to that place when our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world. And he was embraced by his people. So will Christ see the fruit of his labors through us, and he will build his church. He anticipated the joy that would come from the cross, and we must too. We have full assurance that we will reap with joy. Why? Because it's not us who does the work. It is Jesus Christ who does the work. He promised he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. John 16. For in the heavens at God's right hand and, and we are reformed Presbyterians and we believe the doctrine of the mediatorial dominion of Christ. He says he is enthroned as mediator king over all things for your sake as church. Ephesians 1.22. Which is why reformed Presbyterians have planted churches. And even our most famous missionary was sent to the cannibals. Wasn't he, John Payton? Hear how Zechariah promised and prophesied of Christ's present enthronement. And listen to the building part. Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Zechariah 6, 12-13. Have faith in this, that your Savior that bled is the priest on the throne, is the Lamb of God in the midst of the throne, and no opposition will ever prosper against the bride that he bought with his own blood. His church. You need to mix these precious seeds of promise in the word with the seed of gospel that you sow. He will use your tear-streaked faces as you press on, watering your precious seed with your tears for Christ's sake. He promises what? Weeping may endure for a night. But how's the rest go? He promises that joy cometh in the morning. That's the tenor of the whole scripture. There is weeping. God is true and realistic to us, but he says joy comes. Multitude of our captives will be freed. Jesus Christ will build his church. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will spread across the earth and will not neglect the metroplex, even this place. All we must do is really a small thing. Labor in tears. That's a small thing. 
united to the sufferings of the one who was called what? The man of sorrows. You will do great things in him. In May, it will have been 10 years since the very first worship service at the Dallas Reformed Presbyterian Church. We hope to have a service of thanksgiving in God's timing. But I want to tell you, and you know this, many of you know this, we have shed many tears in that time for all kinds of reasons. We still shed tears, and we will shed tears, but we have also reaped with great joy because his word is faithful and true. He is true to his promise. The time will come, friends, when he will wipe away every tear with his own hand. But let us have tears for him, that he would wipe them away as we labor and anticipate joy to come. Until then, friends, may he strengthen your hands as you labor for his sake. Amen. If able, please rise for prayer. Our great God of heaven, answer us, O God, when we pray, thy kingdom come for the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use us, O God. You can use anything. You can use anyone. But we pray that you might use us to extend your kingdom, that it would be to our blessing to labor with tears. Because few of us, Father, are laboring at all, and very few of us ever have a desire to labor with tears. But, oh God, give us a heart that is tender and soft, that will labor with tears. When the unbeliever turns aside, that we would not be angered by it, but instead that we would weep, O God, that we would weep as Jesus wept over Jerusalem, that we would weep as, as, your, as our, our dear father in the faith, Robert Murray McShane, wept, and so many great men of God have wept over the lost perishing. Help us weep when we look at the Metroplex, and like Paul, may we have a spirit that is provoked by the idolatry, that God is not worshipped and glorified. Help us as we weep over these things to be motivated to labor for the glory of God. Father, would you bless these dear families here? Not all are here tonight. And we might even see some of the, uh, some of the discouragement that we might face because of that. But instead, Father, instead of discouragement, help us gird up our loins, so to speak, that we would press on, that nothing would move us. As the Apostle Paul said, None of these things move me. And would you bless that resolve, Father, that we would resolve to labor for Jesus, protect these families who have stepped out by faith to seek the advancements of, of thy kingdom. We pray for their protection and blessings on their work as they go door to door, speaking to their neighbors of Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would give us a means and finances to do the work here, that you would give us people who would come to worship God in this place, that those who have not heard the voice of the Good Shepherd would hear of Christ from this pulpit, and this pulpit, not meaning the pulpit of this building, but the pulpit that is erected, whether it is in this place or not, to preach the very word of life. Give godly leadership to this group. Bring many, Father, we pray that you would turn again our captivity, O God, that they would flow into the churches of God as streams in the south. That in a desert place, there would be a mighty stream, a flood of souls that are saved that would overwhelm the wilderness. That these souls would stream into the church of God and they would all say to one another, come, 
Let us make a perpetual covenant with the Lord and bless his holy name, worshiping the Lamb of God, that Jesus Christ would be glorified. Do these things to the glory of God and use us, your humble servants. We pray in his name. Amen. Let us now sing praises to God from Psalm 126, which we have heard preaching on. We will sing Psalm 126 to the praise of God. Uh, that will be found in there with you on page 271. The tune is New Britain. As we have heard this song preached, I trust it will come alive to us as we sing it. Psalm 126 to the praise of God. The tune is New Britain. Do, 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 do.
Amen. Amen.